Well, internationalists uh, of all types seem to love mountains. Many of them like to climb them. They like to hike them. They set events in mountain regions, the Alps in particular. They painted them. They photographed them. They invented them in a way as, as a preferred site. They ate mountain foods. They made up some of them, like the fondue that uh, I have in the cover of my book. They enjoyed mountain music and they labeled certain music and mountain music. And I was really struck by this, by this element. And in the book, then I, I decided really to historicize this and to see how um, we could actually go back and see how different groups were able to take all the notions of the sublime, right? Those 19th century uh, version of the sublime attached to, to the mountains and then retranslate them after the First World War by, by, by really showing mountains as a site for noble endeavors and to adapt them then to their own internationalist causes, whatever this may be. Hello and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the Library and Archives dedicated to advancing the conversation on multilateralism. I'm Amy Smith and our guest today is Dr. Ilaria Scalia. She's an author and historian who currently holds the post of Senior Lecturer in Modern History at Aston University in Birmingham, UK. She knows our archives very, very well as she has a particular interest in the field of the history of internationalism. She also researches the history of emotions. Dr. Scalia brings these two fields together in her recent book, The Emotions of Internationalism, Feeling International Cooperation in the Alps in the Interwar Period. Ilaria, your book is a delight to read, and I thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. Before we delve further into your enlightening book, would you please say a few words to our listeners about your own international academic journey and what sparked your personal interest in these fields? First of all, good afternoon, and thank you so much for having me. So uh, my history in internationalism, I think, matured during my own doctorate, though looking retrospectively, really, it originated from my own journey, studying abroad in China at the beginning, then in the United States, teaching in the United States, and then in Germany and in the UK. And I think because both personally and professionally, I found myself looking outward, outside of Italy, where I was born and raised and began my studies, to find answers to my questions and to fulfill my own goals. Then that journey fueled my interest for people and institutions who, who did the same thing in the past, and I felt they were close to me. And as for emotions, I think like most, I was raised with the idea that good history is emotional, is distant, and therefore objective. But then my training first dispelled this myth of objectivity. The best we can aspire to is to present and explain well one point of view, though making explicit that point of view, respecting the historical record, accepting its limits. And then th this kind of awareness made evident the ubiquitous place of emotions in the past, just as they are in the present. And so I decided to be part of this burgeoning field of historical inquiry to, to explore them. So can you explain why there is this growing interest in the study of emotions and why emotions are so important in international history? Well, most recently, really in the in the last couple of years, I think various referenda, elections and so on were explained and rationalized as collective expressions of anger, which is indeed an emotion. And this, I think, made the value of studying emotions past and present even more evident to, to many. But even before then, there were a few currents developing that nurtured this rise of emotions. And I was already part of that uh, earlier chapter. And I think the first was kind of the decline of the myth of objectivity that I described earlier. I'm thinking about the, the landmark work by the, no, uh, the Noble Dream by Peter Novick and, and a whole current that followed that. There was a push to continue the conversation, I think, after the challenge posed by the postmodern turn in history and in other disciplines. Is there anything that cannot be explained as a discourse? 
discourse. And so from there, I think came a growing frustration with the absence of the body, of the senses, of the physicality from historical accounts that then the history of emotions sought to address and, and fill that void in, in a way. And then I think there was the rise of the media, particularly visual media that seemed to communicate feelings across borders and in ways that we hadn't thought about. And so I think emotions became important for people to think about what happened when individuals, institutions or government met or not and how they communicated and what effect these dynamics can have. And then when, when these things became even more evident um, in, in very concrete ways, that, that fueled it even more. Absolutely. It's really not something we normally talk about and it's not it's certainly not a topic that has come up on our podcast, for example. So let's let's turn now towards your book and perhaps start with the definition. Um, what is internationalism? And more specifically, how do you find the internationalists in your book? So uh, there are many different definitions of, of internationalism. And there is a beautiful edited volume um, by Patricia Clavin and Glenda Sluga called Internationalisms with, with a wonderful uh, uh, array of all different ways. But in my book, I conceptualized it particularly, specifically as a practice as a set of things that people individually or collectively did. And in particular, as the practice of reaching out internationally in order to fulfill their objectives and to achieve their goals, regardless of, of what these goals were. So framed as such, internationalists formed a heterogeneous group in terms of ideology. They didn't get along with one another in terms of what they thought. In the book, I talk about Catholic, communist, fascist, liberal internationalists, who all engaged in similar activities despite their ideological differences. And these activities included organizing international events, uh, for instance. And they often were active in the same places. In my case, I talk about the Alps and often evoked similar emotions, such as amity, to use a term they like, or friendship, uh, uh, for example. And so that's why I, I found it helpful to define them as a community of practice rather than to divide them up uh, based on what they thought individually. This is very interesting. And and so you show how the internationalists considered emotions really an essential part of their work, as you're saying. And um, th 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 there are sort of functions to emotions, uh, how you feel can affect what you what you do. So your book focuses on these practices of internationalists and the impact of those practices. And in doing so, I think you really beautifully pick out the patterns of emotions that stand out as a sort of barrelief in the, in the narrative. And of course, this unfolds in the context of the interwar period and the past horrors of the First World War are very, very vivid in people's minds. Um, what you bring to the fore is the way in which internationalists sought to encourage, manipulate even, specific emotions. So would you tell us what emotions were linked with internationalism? You've mentioned amity and friendship. What others? Well, you rightly uh, uh, mentioned the First World War, and I, I think this is particularly important because the story I tell in this book is set at a particular moment, the end of what people at the time called the Great War. When people try to make sense of it as an unprecedented carnage, and they try to deal with its effects by looking at emotions. And I think it's something we've forgotten since, but it's certainly evident when you start looking at the sources. They dealt, first of all, with an emotional trauma, coining terms such as shell shock, increasing studies of depression, and so on. And crucially, they explained what they went through as the result of what they sometimes called mismanaged passions. Emotions went away, like excessive pride, resentment. They, they had all sorts of clusters of terms for this, but they, they often talked about emotions gone out of hand. That's what it led then to 
to uh, the tragedy that they went through. And many saw the only way out, the only path towards recovery and towards then the maintenance of peace is one where emotions would be managed. I thought a lot about that term. Should I use manipulating or managing? They all have a different connotation, but they thought that, that it would be possible somewhat to play with emotions and, and, and contain them in a way. In the case of the League of Nations, one of the dominant notions was the hatred or resentment could and should be prevented. And uh, international friendship or amity or again, concord, those sorts of terms, could and should be fostered. And they designed then a number of projects accordingly. And they had all sorts of steps that they devised uh, trying to make that happen. So the book is also about internationalism. And because we're talking about internationalism, we should perhaps also mention nationalism, of which there were also various forms at the time. And I'm sure you will talk about that more later. But to start, how do the emotions that internationalists aim to promulgate compare or contrast with the emotions linked with the rising tide of radical nationalism at the time and different associated ideologies in the interwar period. Yeah, so first, it is important to note that in the mind of many internationalists, nationalism was not incompatible with internationalism. In fact, they were often uh, the first one to self-identify and to label others as members of a particular nation. They really like to list members of things and say this one is the French, the Italian, the German and so on. So what they did not like, what many of them did not like, was extreme nationalism, one that would endanger international peace or would not then participate to this kind of thing. But they weren't averse to nationalism per se. Now, in terms of emotions, some thought that healthy competition was good, right? So they kind of rushed the one gap from from uh, uh, confronting one another, uh, even in, in a competitive fashion, could be positive. And uh, uh, an easy example for this is the Olympic movement, right? The whole idea of having uh, a competition that uh, would still be peaceful, but competition nonetheless. Others, like the UIA, right? The Inter International Mountaineering and Climbing Federation I discuss in the book, still going strong today. You probably know it if you're a climber. In the interwar period, they disagreed in, in that sense with the International Olympic movement. And instead, they discouraged the practice of giving medals to members of a particular nation because they felt that the very notion of competition and, and, and giving a prize to one and not to the other could endanger uh, the larger project of fostering friendship among, among people. So in general, most internationalists, and certainly the ones who dominated at the League of Nations, prefer what today historians of emotion might call a milder emotional style. You know, they rejected the strong emotion of fascists, the Nazi movement, the strong pride and so on, in favor of a version of internationalism that allow for nations but who to interact with one another in some, some kind of a benevolent way. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting in your book, the way that these um, inciting very strong emotions was uh, like pride and so on, as you're, as you're talking about, um, w was not seen as a good thing. But also the internationalists were also concerned not to be seen as touting a sort of one-worldism. Um, yeah. How, in the end, did their their way of of seeing emotions result in being seen as weak. So yes, in the book I argue that, that this choice of mild emotional style did result in looking weak. And I, I started thinking about it that way by looking actually at contemporary arguments, people at the time already saying the same thing. And, uh, you know, one of, of my own strong emotional experiences at the League of Nations Archives in Geneva was to really get a sense of their voice, their presence, this, this party arguing that, was when I opened these boxes filled with requests 
for a League of Nations anthem. People took the time to compose them, to mail them out. They begged for a flag around which to feel. Many took the time to design models, to stitch them by hand, to send them over. And there's something about going there and finding them folded and touching them. But, but they were never adopted. And this choice at the time was justified by saying that uh, if they did adopt that, then people would complain about what, you know, here comes the super state and then they would, they would be alienated from the league. They would, you know, individual nations would feel that the league uh, was trying to impose on them in ways that they never agreed to. And yet, many people argue then, and I actually argue argue as well, based though not particularly on their point of view, but but on the analysis of motion that that and uh, the moral economy of the time, this choice did result in in an overall cold and distant style that ultimately contributed to the league becoming stereotyped as, again, distant in, in a negative sense, far away from what would call, you know, the gritty real challenges of the of the tough life. And and in, in a way, trust, he lost trust, he lost credibility in being able to actually engage with the nitty gritty and the real and the engage and the strong passions of the time, if you will, uh, perhaps by trying to be too reasonable at time and too uh, uh, calming in the face yeah. of very uh, violent and, and strong passions coming from, from these extreme nationalist movements. And dampening these emotions that are there. Mm. At the same time, it's it's full of emotions as you bring out, and um, you know we're recording this podcast from the very imposing Palais des Nations in the Ariana Park with its sweeping lawns overlooking, or, you know, going away overlooking the Mont Blanc uh, that we can see on a clear day, as you point out also in your book. And it's it's really no accident that these international internationalist emotions sort of find their home in the Alps. Um, almost like the scenery, the the mountains embody this this spirit, and they saw the landscape as a real place of inspiration. And it's during this interwar period also that the Swiss writer uh, Robert de Traz uh, uh, wrote his book with a title that famously uh, summed up the sentiment as "L'esprit de Genève," spirit of Geneva. So briefly, tell us how internationalist emotions were tied into a myth around Geneva and how these emotions linked to the mountains were used also to argue for the seat of the League being in Geneva. Well, internationalists uh, of all types seem to love mountains. Many of them like to climb them. They like to hike them. They set events in mountain regions, the Alps in particular. They painted them. They photographed them. They invented them in a way as as a preferred site. They ate mountain foods. They made up some of them, like the fondue that uh, I have in the cover of my book. They enjoyed mountain music and they labeled certain music and mountain music. And I was really struck by this by this element. And in the book, then I, I decided really to historicize this and to see how um, we could actually go back and see how different groups were able to take all their notions of the sublime, right, those 19th century uh, version of the sublime attached to, to the mountains, and then retranslate them after the First World War by, by really showing mountains as a site for noble endeavors and to adapt them then to their own internationalist causes, whatever this may be. And I, I think it's important to remember it was not only the extreme nationalists that did this. You know, there is good literature on them doing this. But the internationalists did that too. And so when it comes to Geneva, now, of course, the site was not chosen because of the mountains, but 
It was chosen for a number of other reasons, but it is relevant that as soon as it was chosen, its proximity to the Alps was often emphasized, sometimes exaggerated, and building on these motifs that I just described. It was then frequently associated with its goals of fostering security and friendship among nations, sometimes by hiking, climbing, eating the fondue, or or doing any of these uh, quintessential mountain activities. Which we still do now, of course. Yes. The Palais des Nations was uh, planned in the late 20s and built in the 30s, of course. And in your book, you call it the greatest artifact of the League of Nations. What do you see in the architects' illustrations of their proposals for the building? You've already touched slightly on this. And so this is another another lovely uh, bit of archival research at the at the League of Nations archives because these plans are still there. You know, they come in these big albums and one opens them up and, and they see them. And there was this big competition for the design of a new building. Hundreds of entries are still preserved there and, and many featured mountains. Often I found it uh, striking, exaggerated in terms of size or shape. And they thought of this this really futuristic buildings uh, that were really designed trying to maximize the mountain exposure to make people look at mountains in all different ways. There was one in the middle of a lake, you know, on the lake. You know, so, so they had all sorts of ways to fantasize about what this site would look like in light of the mountains surrounded above below. So the winning design was actually not from that competition. It came later. But it also, uh, you know, in the end, featured a large gallery overlooking the Alps. It's still there. And um, I did find the rationale for it, which I quote in the book. And that was so that the delegates coming out of uh, their deliberations could be inspired by the scenery and once again feel that togetherness that all those mountain activities and associations evoke. Well, it still remains very impressive. Mm -hmm. The the way that you have written your book um, is really very well constructed. You describe your book as moving uh, from the hub of the League of Nations outwards uh, to discuss the connections with these different organizations and institutions and networks that hovered around it, or, you know, often trying to look very international. So starting with the League, would you tell us a bit how, from its functionalist approach, the League came to see the importance of intellectual cooperation and how it might lead to a League of Minds? Yeah, I remember when I was researching the book and writing it, in organizing my my notes, I had a folder that was called the League's Halo. I thought of it as the League's Halo, you know, all of this, this ring of organizations and people that um, somewhat either emanated out of the League or somehow seemed together towards it in one way or another. Uh, now, in terms of the League of Minds, now the League unapologetically followed a top-down approach. You know, they charged intellectuals, uh, as they called them at the time, with the task and the responsibility of educating public opinion and of helping to foster a culture of peace. And, and major figures of the time, you know, from Albert Einstein to Marie Curie and many others, uh, were involved. And so uh, intellectual cooperation, as it was called, became one of the League's leading branches. And then in 1926, a separate institute was started in Paris, and this later became UNESCO, and it still exists, of course. I think it's it's uh, striking how they laid the foundation for anything from interlibrary loan initiative to student and faculty exchanges. But the one thing that somehow we have lost is the idea of the intellectual. And it's probably because, you know, later on, there was a whole critique uh, uh, in regard to the term intellectual and the very notion of the intellectual is seen top down in a negative way. There seemed to be this idea that the intellectual was this person distant from reality, a bit like the, uh, you know, stereotype version of the Palais de Nation that, that seemed to elitist 
for the late 20th century and early 21st century world. But sometimes I find myself thinking, you know, if we were to strip that away and go back to the original idea that somebody took the time to study and, and, and to learn about something and to accumulate a knowledge, you know, perhaps it, you know, there is a responsibility there to share that knowledge, right? And to, and to educate each other on our own field of expertise uh, to try to, to create a more informed public opinion. I found that quite, uh, quite vivid and striking and relevant uh, to this day. But that was kind of the, the idea uh, then that drove many of these initiatives. You bring this up really well in your book. But let's perhaps move up to the mountains. And uh, in your book, you invite us actually to put on our boots and go. So let's go ahead. This is the really the arena in which these internationalist practices could play out on a sort of ideal backdrop. And um, you mentioned that it, it, sometimes they talked about creating notre pays là-haut, our peace up high. But first of all, as an aside almost, what did the Catholic Pope have to do with this? Ah, the Catholic Pope, Achille Ratti, uh, Pope Pius the, the 11th, avid climber in his uh, in his youth. And um, he wrote about the mountains and, and uh, I quite enjoyed actually reading reading his writing and then citing them and trying to place them in a, in a broader, uh, really environment milieu at the time of different novels that describe the Alps and similar ways. And um, once he became Pope, he, he proclaimed Bernard of Menton, patron saint of people, who either inhabited mountains or visited them or climbed them, somehow made them holy as a, as a whole, as a site. And then it, it very much became part of the larger movement connecting mountains and internationalism that I that I described earlier. That's yeah, fascinating. So, But everybody is not a mountaineer. Uh, tell us more about... <laughs> no, tell us more about how these keen alpinists uh, brought the experience of the emotions that they felt up there in the mountains down from the mountains into to the public through art and and photography yeah and it's it's funny these terms right mountaineer the, 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 the montagnard you know in french and there are all sorts alpinista i think it's useful to clarify some of their use because they, they could get quite messy and they, they were not always used consistently so in the book i talked about various groups as they were understood then and sometimes uh, idealized in the time i examined so one group were the people from the mountains, you know, they sometimes refer to as the, the montagnard. And that, that I would uh, qualify for because I come from the other side of the, of the Alps. So there was the Italian side. I, I could probably pass as a montagnard. And these were often portrayed in film and literature in contradicting ways. Uh, well, film there was a bit early. Well, they, they start in film at the time, but, you know, even earlier with novels and, and in literature, they were often uh, portrayed in contradicting ways, either very healthy and very happy. I think of Heidi or as this quasi monstrous, disproportionately uh, affected by diseases such as cretinism, thyroidism and all sorts. And often uh, stereotype is quite grumpy on one on one side, but also very authentic and honest. Matter of fact, you know, salt of the earth kind of kind of type. So internationalists adapted the, the stereotypical representation of, of, of these groups to argue that then mountains would be uh, ideal sites for cooperation, either because they made people happy, ID like friendly or because they will lead to this authentic relationship that the grumpy montagnard could could have handled. Then there were the alpinists, right? The the the, the, the climbers. That's that's the category I cannot I cannot quite uh, quite claim uh, any ownership to. And they too though became essentialized. They're strong, ready to help each other. Uh, many of them were active in international organizations such as the UI I, I mentioned earlier. And and they did engage in international activities. 
such as standardizing maps, uh, creating coordinated responses to avalanches and all these kind of things, very much responding to the League of Nations prompt to standardize in different fields. And here, though, too, it's important to remember that many of their activities targeted at even broader public. This is not the story about a few people. You know, they had activities for what they call bon marcheurs, the good walkers, who could just, you know, maybe meet uh, each other on a Sunday walk and go for a short hike. But they would also reach out to how many children going there on summer camp or, you know, for a hike on a Sunday. I did that as a girl. There was still this idea that, you know, children can become friends by joining some kind of uh, youth club and doing these kind of activities. And then, of course, patients of all types, uh, they could go there to treat diseases such as tuberculosis, for instance, which I, which I talk about. And so all of these categories really connected to one another and then led um, very much to, to broadening these ideas and these practices, not just to a small group of climbers or, or, or the small number of people living on the mountains proper, but uh, a much broader public. And then, again, the art, photography and all of these different initiatives, movies and novels that then uh, really became uh, uh, quite dominant in terms of culture in this period. Absolutely. I think you even mentioned specifically the number of movies that came out with mountains as a big theme in them. I, th- I think it was even 855 in yeah, in that interwar period. Something enormous amount of films. <laughs> I, I do remember triple checking every number. I was very grateful that uh, there are wonderful databases now available. And there was this beautiful collection of posters um, that uh, was um, made available, if I recall, by the um, uh, Museum in Turin uh, for alpinism and others. And I put together all these things and and, uh, and then ran the numbers and started counting. You know, I actually went through the poster and counted how many of them feature particular themes. And yeah, yeah it was quite quite dominant and quite understanding. I think most, most people tend to Think about the Berg film and Krakauer study of the Nazi appropriation of the mountain imagery in this period, which which indeed existed. I'm not necessarily contradicting. I'm just contextualizing as part of a broader appropriation of the mountain that uh, was done by different groups, not just by by Nazis or, or extreme uh, fascist groups. Well, let's um, move a little from the groups and internationalists as a whole and talk about uh, specific individuals who were some of these um, internationalists uh, to look at uh, a couple of doctors who were working up in the in the Alps, uh, not too far from Geneva, because the mantas offered this sort of place of peace and uh, a place of healing. And you've talked about patients also up in the mountains. And in your book, you write about the small mountain village of Les Ans in the Canton of Valais. It's about 120 kilometers from Geneva. And it was a sort of almost thriving hub of international internationalist internationalism. What is this link between the League of Nations and internationalization of the Alps? Yeah, so following uh, uh, the League, many internationalist groups started to organize activities on the Alps. And conversely, people in institutions that were already there for different reasons ended up aligning or associating their activities with the League. And so I see this kind of uh, circular uh, process. And the medical institutions in Lausanne, uh, that I discussed in, in my book belong for the most part to the second group. So they were already there because the, the sanatoria had already, had already been built since the late 19th century because of this village particular position and microclimate. So the reason why they were there was not necessarily because of their proximity to Geneva, but by the time we get to the interwar period, we really see how they try to align their activities with the League of Nations and, and very much uh, emphasize this proximity, both uh, geographical and, uh, and also ideological. And so your book is, is beautifully illustrated with some wonderful photos of children very aesthetically posed in summer meadows on snowy slopes and, and, and of naked sunbathing patients working in the fresh alpine air and, and some strategically placed flower pots occasionally. 
Um, but these surprising photos lead us to uh, one of the internationalists you mentioned in your book. Uh, would you tell us a bit more about Dr. Rollier and the impact of his work? Yes, Dr. Auguste Rollier, also known as the Sun Doctor. And by the way, I owe to his, uh, uh, one of his relatives, one of his descendants, uh, the courtesy of allowing me the rights to, to publish some of these photographs. And, and uh, thanks to, to his family, they were able to, to enjoy them and, and, uh, and to publish them. I was, I was quite grateful. So the Sun Doctor, starting from 1903, pioneered and practiced what was known as heliotherapy, the sun cure, the sun treatment, following the principle that controlled exposure to the sun could help with the treatment of tuberculosis. And, you know, before antibiotics, options were limited, and this was kind of the, the one of the few available treatments. Now, patients were not completely naked. In fact, children in particular wore the famous culotte relier, an undergarment especially designed to maximize exposure while preserving modesty. Now, by 1930, that relier alone ran 37 clinics with more than 1,100 patients. And not all of these patients were wealthy. He had some clinics for well-to-do people who really expected, you know, a nice treatment and beautiful lodgings. But he also had establishments for, for people of all, of all different classes and, and walks of life. He designed a special bed, le lit relier, for workers so that the lathes, the lathes and other machines could be applied, could be literally attached to the bed. And that way they could continue to work and keep busy, continuing to earn, avoiding depression. That was a big part. You know, he really connected the physical well-being uh, with, the, with the mental one. And also to become friends with patients from other countries while undergoing uh, lengthy treatments, you know, sometimes for months, for years. And so uh, uh, in his mind, during these long stays, putting together all these different uh, uh, bits, you know, it wouldn't just be healing individuals. It would be really healing the world and, and providing the, you know, the foundation then to, to build a lasting peace. And that peace would start with an emotional peace that the Alps would be especially conductive to. And the buildings, the buildings still exist. And the building, so of uh, some of them do, you know, some of them uh, do not. But uh, I, I do recall uh, quite evocative actually going into one and it was still there and I could see very much those very balconies and those very details whose design he had uh, uh, minded so carefully. And there was another very renowned doctor and internationalist, Dr. Vautier, who also practiced in Les Ains at the time. And we may not have heard of him, but as you write in your book, he was in fact nominated several times for the Nobel Peace Prize. And at Dr. Vautier's university sanatorium, it was, as you mentioned, the, the emotional and physical and intellectual and social needs of people suffering from tuberculosis were very carefully and individually prescribed. You've talked about the um, exposure to sun, but there were very specific timetables about how this should be done and, and what exposure at what time of the day and so on. It's very, very detailed. But this was all very uh, carefully catered for. And, uh, you know, in these post-COVID lockdown times, the cover photo on your book um, perhaps might make us cringe because it's a group of uh, happy patients in the sanatorium all dipping into a cheese fondue together. But uh, it, there was a real firm belief in these practices as generating international fellowship and fraternity and harmony, and that it would, as you said, sort of extend out beyond these individuals, beyond these patients and the hospital communities and so on, much further across the world. Could you explain to us just a little bit more about the hopes for and impact of this uh, Swiss-managed international university sanatorium? 
program. Yes, yeah, so the, the picture you see on the cover is actually the colorized version of a glass slide I found at the archive. I was, I was quite pleased uh, when, when uh, then the, the, you know, the UP, they were able to, to colorize it and, and uh, really make it alive. You know, they, they seem like they're actually moving. And these were students and faculty who were uh, affected, university students and faculty who were affected with tuberculosis. And at this particular sanatorium could continue their academic activities. And so Dr. Vautier carefully crafted every aspect of their experience from daily schedules to activities, and each one of them contributed to the medical, emotional, and political internationalist objective of uh, of the establishments. And one of them indeed was, was eating fondue. And so the, this idea of sharing food together, and he especially minded the design of each room. And if you, you know, you can stare at the, at the picture for a long time, and then you, you realize every single detail. You know, they're patients, but they're not wearing uh, pajamas, they're wearing regular clothes, and each room was designed ever so carefully. And whenever somebody tried to change it, you would always have a rationale why, you know, this should or should not happen, depending on the effect that this would have. So an extremely careful man. And uh, on one hand, this picture might look dated, right? It might look like a, a world from a long time ago. And yet there's a part of me that thinks it really does not. Because if we think about just advertisements for study abroad program, just to come up with an easy example, or some of these brochures, these, uh, you know, brochures for corporate team buildings activities, or nowadays websites and all these things, right? In many ways, try to replicate that kind of aesthetic, right? It's all about the atmosphere, people happy doing things together. Even when we think about attempts at assessing or identifying the user's experience, you know, all of these ways in which these things now are, are broken up and counted and quantified and, and assessed in all the different, sometimes big brother ways, you know, Orwellian, Orwellian ways. In many ways, they go back to these very uh, notions that deepen the roots in, uh, in the 1920s and in these very initiatives, right? That atmospheres do matter. And it is about particular colors and feels and textures and excitements and indeed foods and everything else. And of course, that picture is staged. We know it was staged, but all of the advertisements we look at are staged too. And so I think that continuity, too, can be useful to explore. But at the sanatorium, at the end of this interwar period, the Second World War was drawing much closer and the emotions started perhaps to be linked to nationalism much more clearly. How did this play out at the at this university sanatorium? And, and would you expand a little on how feelings evoked by the Alpine settings are used for different agendas? Yeah, and here is where it gets, it gets messy, right? So as, as I mentioned earlier, Many internationalists were not necessarily against nationalism, and many nationalists were also internationalists. So that, that's one thing, right? So we don't want to see nationalism, internationalism as two things that are opposed to one another. But then, of course, there were extreme nationalists, right? The ones that, that wouldn't, in principle, necessarily be associated in our mind with internationalism. And yet, as soon as we start uh, looking at internationalism as a practice, then we find out that there, there was such a thing as a group of fascist internationalists. They were trying to connect across borders to link with other fascists. And there were also many extreme nationalist groups that kept their uh, engagements in non-fascist organizations or in internationalist organizations, even after the countries that they uh, belong to uh, had already left the League of Nations, for instance, or even when the, their ideologies were completely uh, at odds. And so I think this continuity of practice, despite the ideological difference or the or the rhetoric or in these incongruences, this, these contradictions are, are some of the most interesting to, um, to really identify, to really uh, explore. And so then to really dig deep into why is it that they continue to be involved, you know, that, that's again, it's, it's a messy story. You know, in some cases, it also seems, you know, a bit nefarious because, you know, under 
alpinistic friendship, one could hide all matters of sin, all sorts of questionable associations. On the other hand, people were people, and sometimes they had alpinistic friendships, and they continued their relationship with them in the same ways in which some of us might continue a relationship with friends or family members that we feel strongly at odds with politically. And so it's a, it's a fascinating, I think, microcosm through which uh, one can analyze all sorts of you know, deep and extremely relevant questions about what it means to think something, to do something, to associate it with people, to live life in times that are emotionally and politically charged. So your book focuses on the time of the League of Nations, but as the United Nations emerged after the Second World War, do you think there was a shift in emphasis of emotions linked with the new organization? Well, there, there were certainly shifts in emphasis and many things did change after 1945. But, you know, I think in my book, in the end, I emphasize continuities more, more, more than I emphasize breaks. And that's probably in reaction to the fact that historiographically we have not been doing so. You know, traditionally, we tend to really see this big moment there, which is the Second World War. And there's this big wall that we tend to build and, and everything that happened before then seemed to be uh, part of, uh, of a completely different era. And, and, I, and I didn't see that while doing this research. Uh, I think that the, the interwar emphasis on, again, emotions, atmosphere and, and, uh, and these practices of, that, that I'm describing, if uh, forgotten for a time, continued, however, in different forms. And, and I'm thinking not just about the, the League of Nations and the UN, but also about cultural diplomacy, all of these programs aimed at winning hearts and minds in in different settings. There's a good literature in the US uh, on this. And uh, this old trust in uh, in-person encounters, you know, building sentimental paths during the Cold War. All of these things originated um, very much in the in the 20s and the 30s and in the places that, that I describe here. So, uh, you know, I think it's important. Well, first of all, not to stereotype, you know, internationalism is necessarily good or happy or benevolent at all times. No more than we do with, with any other with any other uh, political movement or ideological movement or a community of practice. But also not to see that separate from the globalized world that, that developed after 1945, which also has, you know, elements that one can construe as benevolent, as positive and, you know, leading to peace, but also others that clearly are not. And that's why our moments right now is so difficult. And, and the, the very tension, the coexistence of this conflicting poles is something that I think we could we could really benefit from from seeing on the long durée, really, really seeing how this has been playing out over a long period of time, rather than just cutting the, the roots short in 1945. Mm, the continuity. So we're drawing to a close with this episode, but do you find that having researched emotions in history, um, you have become much more aware of the way in which we use emotions today in the international arena? And if so, what do you see? Well, looking, you know, I'm not sure I can offer solutions, but, but certainly I do think that looking at emotions does make one just, uh, like you said, more aware, just noting perhaps things that otherwise one wouldn't. So I, I do believe that today, as, as back then, one of the great challenges is that what people feel seems to drive their actions sometimes more than what they know. And so th these collective notions of anger, of pride, but also empathy or solidarity, you know, they don't have to be good or bad, but they seem to affect people's behavior in, in important ways, not only when they vote, but also when they decide to support particular causes or not. And these this communities of feeling, these emotional communities, so to speak, seem to regard knowledge, fact, you know, less than the, this immediacy of feeling. And, and I think that there's something to, to be said about looking at the history of that. 
Now, I was struck uh, by how people in the 1920s had already identified this dynamic in how they saw it then as a priority to try to manage these emotions accordingly. They thought if people are going to act according to emotion, if they're going to kill each other according, following these strong feelings, or uh, then healing is going to have to come from there too. And so they really, they really thought that something uh, needed to be done in order to control these feelings out of hand, as I was mentioning at the beginning. And I think they identified the media as one of the most important battlegrounds for that. You know, they lived at a time when radio was becoming more and more important. Visual media was really emerging. And, you know, intellectual cooperation, these committees, they really put a lot of effort trying to control educational materials, the kind of images put out there. You mentioned the photographs, you know, the amount of photographs they produce and how carefully they stage them because they really believed that they're being mindful about the visual messages that one sent it out and, and controlling those and using those using those was, was really uh, of the essence. And I wonder if uh, perhaps we need to, to go back to that. We need to have a public discussion about how we want to discipline uh, in, in a way that is not oppressive, but how do we want to regulate this? How do we want to handle, manage? You know, we, we can use whatever term we want, but how are we going to deal with the reality that these the, currents at work, and and if we want to survive as a as a community, as a human the community of human beings, we need to to, to get a grip and, and find a way to uh, to handle this together. Mm. So, what would you like our listeners to take away from this conversation? Uh, what I was wondering, what message, what image, or perhaps what even emotion would you like to leave us with? Well, I guess you know first, uh, if the, if by any chance any of the listeners. Ever thought that perhaps emotions, you know, are interesting, but somewhat decorative or, or fluffy or uh, at odds with one would call proper good history, you know, or maybe too hard to study or too impossible to, to, to you know, get a hold of intellectually, you know, let, let, let's set that aside. And, you know, if and instead, I really would like, I hope that my legacy as a historian, my, my work will, will perhaps help the process of embracing the fact then in the end, there is a long history of people individually and in groups feeling emotions, worrying about them, modifying their behavior accordingly, and trying to make others feel one way or another. We do that in our personal lives. We do that socially. We do that politically, internationally. And so let's dare to use our hearts and brains to make sense of it the best we can. Let's perhaps resurrect the intellectual bit, right? Instead of looking at, at it as a bad word, let's broaden paths to education so that it's not an elitist thing, but let's hold discussions within and outside of the academy about how we can make sense of what we feel, of how we make other people feel, of the forces us that push us to feel one way or another, especially in this age of mass media, social media, AI, and all these scary things, and and perhaps what we can do together across borders to make a better world, whatever our alpine track is, whatever our chosen peak to climb might be, so that uh, we can make each other's life just just a bit better and and do our bit to improve our world. And that's in the end the biggest lesson I got from this time, you know, that many people seem to have this sense of duty. We, we, we got to do our bit. So if I can do my bit and inspire others to, to do the same and to do that through emotions, then, then that, that would be, I think, something would give me a lot of joy at least. What a wonderful it. way to end this, uh, this episode. Dr. Scalia, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a true pleasure. Thank you very much. 